When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio. one Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. All right, it's Film Study with Ken McCusick. This is our Know Your Foe episode as we look forward to this Sunday when the Ravens host the New Orleans Saints at a 4 o'clock game, so a late game. So, uh, Ken McCusick, how you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? I'm doing well. And uh, like normal, we get someone from the opponent to join us. And today, it's from my favorite website, The Athletic, where we're going to talk with Deuce Windham. How you doing, Deuce? Doing fantastic, man. Um, been a bye week for us. So I'm excited to get back into football. Yeah, the bye yeah. weeks are always tough to uh, have to watch other teams play as a fan. Yeah. Long week, but you get football to the end of the season now, dude, so that's good news. So t- tell us a little bit about your work at The Athletic and how you got there, and uh, what do you typically write about for The Athletic? 
Well, uh, predominantly I, I do film analysis. So this all got started a little bit probably about two years ago. We go back to the 2017 Senior Bowl is where I really got into it. Uh, getting into player evaluation, working with different scouts and players, then attending the Scouting Academy after I had the opportunity to take part in their Prove It contest over the 2018 summer. Ended up finishing third among all amateur scouts in their competition, going through the academy, working with a great, bunch of great people. Long story short, that has springboarded into a lot of opportunities in radio and also working for The Athletic now as their primary film guy for the New Orleans Saints. And uh, that's been going on couple months now have been a lot of fun all right well very cool deuce so we're going to tap into this and as i always explain uh for ravens fans here this is really an explanation about what the saints uh strengths are what their personnel their schemes are and deuce is going to take us through this an educational thing for us i'll be talking a lot less than normal hopefully 25 percent or less we'll promise i won't tell a story but this is mostly about deuce let's jump right in deuce if you don't mind on offense you know the main yeah let's go the main person everybody's talking about, of course, is Drew Brees, the uh, soon-to-be 40-year-old. Yeah, he is. And, you know, it, it's funny because generally, and this goes for any player, and, you know, quarterback and kicker, one of those rare positions where they can maybe hit those late 30s. You know, uh, generally we start talking about a guy with physical decline, and Saints fans get very mad when I talk about this because they hate to hear it. But Drew is definitely physically declined in some of the ways that he approaches the game specifically. And it almost sounds counterintuitive because you look at his, his box score, he has got near career high in yards per attempt. He's once again on pace to break the NFL record for completion percentage, but it's how he's doing it because there's a misconception that when a, a guy loses arm strength, like as a quarterback, you know, you look at Brady and look at Breeze, neither can throw necessarily – with the same ball placement they did 10 years ago, but they can both still throw the ball 45 yards. But is it going to go to the spot that it's supposed to go? And as a player, especially as a quarterback, as you age, when your arm strength diminishes, it doesn't necessarily mean you can't heave it. It means you can't put it in a spot anymore. So you have to become much more cerebral with how you attack. And that's been Drew's thing is he's having success right now and putting all these numbers down and he's doing it all with a shortened field. Generally, in fact, he's only completed a pass in terms of air yards, 30 yards or less. He's yet to complete an air mm. yards pass over 30 yards. But that said, look how he's slicing apart defenses, and it's from the mental side of the game. It's understanding his pre-snap reads and making those quick post-snap adjustments, understanding what routes are going to be open and throwing them before defenses can react. So he's making up for his diminishing physical ability with heightened mental ability. And this is a guy that – and I'm not kidding you. This is not hyperbole or anything – he will spend eight to eight in the facility on an off day watching film. It is his life, and that is why he's able to have success at 39 in the way that he is. That's uh, that's really great. We definitely saw a lot of the same thing from Peyton Manning uh, in his years in Denver where his arm turned into a fairly limp noodle, frankly, by the end. He was still able to figure out where can I put the ball for my receiver to, to have it in the in, in short distances. Uh, what, uh, what can frustrate drew at this point yeah drew at this point well i think the same thing that basically every other quarterback gets frustrated from and that's pressure but specifically interior pressure and you know and that's where guys for the ravens like you know uh, zadarius smith is going to be a potential you know game wrecker if he can win against guys like andres pete if they move him inside like they did against the titans and for drew i honestly don't think it's the height thing and that that gets thrown out a lot but obviously that hasn't hindered him in his whole career so it's not really going to change it's not like he's having batted balls of the line more than average but i think for him the 
biggest thing is it closes off his throwing lanes and the Saints predominantly run a West Coast style offense and you know it's a gumbo offense it's not this you know the the West Coast you might have grown up with with the Shanahan with the Broncos or even going back to the Walsh days it's definitely adapted with a lot of new schemes and things thrown into it but at its core, it's still a West Coast. You know, my split end runs a slant. I hit him in the slant, mesh concepts, things like that. You know, so closing those interior throwing lanes can really hinder Drew's ability to get the ball out quickly as well as, you know, accurately. You know, so I think that's the biggest thing that, you know, the Ravens can do to really try to take away his advantage. That said, it gets really tough when you look at the weapons they have because you start rushing with interior guys and, blink, and bringing those linebackers. Then you got to watch out now for Ingram and Kamara running out into the flats on screens and things like that. So I think one of the problems with, you know, the Saints is, and this has helped Drew be as successful as he is, that they've, he probably has the most talented cast he's ever had on offense, ever. And that, that includes the Super Bowl year. Whether they can replicate those results is yet to be seen. But talent for talent, they put more talent around Drew this year than he's ever had. So it, even with pressure, it's really tough to attack him. Right. Well, Kamara himself, we want to get to him and a lot of the skill position players a little later. I'm, I, I I could not believe the stats from Michael Thomas when I, when I saw them today for the first time in terms of his catch percentage for the year. But uh, – in terms of Breeze, let's let's go one more step here. You mentioned interior pressure can, can bother. Is there anything about being vertically challenged and uh, just that space getting tighter in there that requires him to make additional pre-snap reads? Now, what I'm talking about is um, he's the Ravens use a lot of pre-snap movement, mm-hmm. and they will they will they will show you six at the line of scrimmage, and they'll drop out of that, which is a, is probably tougher to figure out exactly where that hot read needs to be or where, you know, if you're going to be able to hit the hot read if the blitz comes. Uh, do you see any of that as a problem? And they do have Brent Urban on the inside who's six seven. Any of that a problem for Breeze potentially? Throughout his career, it hasn't typically been a problem. Um, the problem comes if the pressure gets to him, not necessarily what's happening in the back end. And it's interesting that you note that because as I went and did some of the charting of my own going back over this Ravens and Titans game, it, there were a couple of plays where I, I noticed Don was doing three to four pre-snap reads in one play. I mean, con- constantly rotating the safeties and rotating the linebackers and giving a different look every couple of seconds. And it was very obvious that that, plus the actual hits rattled Mariota and his progression slowed down to the point where y'all were getting sacks after about four and a half seconds. That's something I don't foresee with Drew, and this isn't me talking down about the Ravens at all, simply pointing out that you're talking about a different caliber of opponent where plays that the Ravens have an opportunity to get a sack because of the time they were able to generate that is something that you're probably not going to be able to see. But where you can see success is guys like I mentioned Smith. I loved him rushing the interior and how he did, you know, over the left guard and playing from a four eye. He was able to just hit with a burst and just win a one-on-one. That's how you get to Drew because it doesn't give him the time to react. Because even the best concepts, whether it be a tunnel screen, which the Saints love to run to Ted Ginn and Michael Thomas, or you know uh, they're running a spot concept or, or scissors, all that is going to need two to three seconds to develop. So that, that quick interior, that's how you get to him. I don't think the pre-snap read is going to be an issue for Drew because you're talking about a guy who's been in the league almost 20 years. And he is arguably, you can argue that some quarterbacks are better in terms of what they have achieved. But from the mental side of the game, it's really tough for me to put anybody above Drew Brees in the league right now. I don't think he's going to be fooled, but you can still win just being talent for talent. Okay. 
All right. Well, very good. Well, let's let's move on and and talk about uh, how about home and road for for Breeze. That is one thing I I'm sure Ravens fans want to think there's an advantage there to be gained. Yeah. Well, bad news there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that it's kind of a misconception. I'll tell you why that the Saints have struggled on the roll on the road in the past few years, and it hasn't been Drew Breeze. Drew Brees, the, the, first of all, the Saints on their last five road games are averaging right around 30 points a game. And I only included road games outdoors, in the grass, in the elements. I didn't count going to Atlanta. So in the last five games outside, 30 points a game. And if you look at Drew's just historical numbers, and, and you can if you, even, you don't even have to go and pay for one of those great big sites like PFF. You can go to like Pro Football Focus. That's where I am his career, Yeah, look at his career numbers outdoors. You know, 65% completion percentage, 90.8 rating, you know, uh, 7.1 yards per attempt. While that's not mind-blowing numbers, that is far from bad, very far from bad where the average guy is, is in the 80s range. So, and keep in mind, that's also playing with a lot of bad teams. Drew's had to play from behind for a lot of years. Drew doesn't typically struggle more than any other quarterback in terms of outdoor efficiency. You know, it's the defenses that have always been the Achilles heel for the Saints with Drew having multiple, you know, historically bad defenses, and that's not hyperbole, literally historically bad defenses. Drew is not the one that you have to try to take advantage of. It's always been the Saints' defense. Right. you got to make a mortal contender. Him ninety-two point one career rating on the road for Drew Brees and one hundred two point four at home. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, well let's move on. Let's talk about Alvin Kamara and uh, and what he brings to the table. Uh, take us through it because I don't think everybody. I certainly don't think all Ravens fans really even know who Alvin Kamara is. Well, Alvin Kamara is. Mm. How do you describe a guy that is so versatile yet still has a ways to go? He's the offensive rookie of the year. He averaged over six yards a carry last year, caveat there being Mark Ingram soaked up all the eight-man boxes. So last year, and I think Mark Ingram gets lost in a lot of this, Mark Ingram last year was the best running back in the NFL in terms of yards per carry who had seen at least 40% of his rushes be against an eight-man box. So he soaked up all those heavy boxes, and Alvin Kamara only saw about 14% of his boxes a stack. So he was able to run rampant. He's a guy that just dominates space, whether it's in the passing game or the running game, primarily as an outside zone runner. That's the format that he's best at, most familiar with. This year they've tried to use him more in inside zone, duo, and power, which is more Ingram's realm. But yep. Kamara's a guy you want to get in space. And however you can do that, you can call him an X-factor, a weapon, you know, whatever – he was on an MVP pace before Ingram has returned, and you'll see his numbers go down a bit because they like – Sean Payton, even going back to his New York Giants days, has always been a running back committee guy. He will always be a running back by committee guy. He could have Walter Payton, and he would be a running back by committee guy. That's just how Sean operates. So you're going to see him tick down a little bit, but that's also beneficial to both backs because they get less snaps, which means they are healthier all the way through the game. They're not tired. They don't have to worry about stamina issues. They're not seeing 30 touches, and they're wore out in the fourth quarter and can't make a play. And, and examples of that is go back to last year for the Saints or even some plays this year. But look at the Redskins game last year where the Saints were able to come back. Alvin Kamara has a phenomenal drive and makes that bobbling catch towards the end to tie up the game, also scores the two-point conversion. He was fresh. He had seen very few snaps to that point. So it's it's more than just is he talented enough. It's also the fact that the Saints are deep to where they will continue to slice you and dice you all throughout the game, and that's what makes them so tough to defend against. So I noticed from the depth chart that the Saints are one of the teams that carries a football uh, fullback, and that's one of the <laughs> – 
points I wanted to make about the eight-man box is I, I, I hear it said all the time, and, and about the Ravens in particular, that mm-hmm. they're always running into an eight-man box, and it's one of the highest percentages in the league they do. I mean, that's a function of having an effective fullback. When you have an effective fullback, you guarantee effectively you're going to be running into an eight-man box if you put that on the field. Um, it, it seems to me like they try and run Kamara probably in 11 personnel or even uh, you know, without a tight end. Yeah, so that they might try and run him, and and that's that's a function of trying to get him in space, and and he's good enough to beat people then, and you run him into against five or six defenders. Uh, well, and I it's would... also a tendency thing. So you know, I talked about the style. So the Saints are one of those teams where, when it comes to blocking, they're not a man blocking team or an outside zone team. They run everything, and they've got the offensive line to do it. They've got unarguably, to me, it's unarguable. They got one of the best O lines in the NFL right now. Mm-hmm. And you can see that based on the, the type of styles they can play. They can run you a, a you know a power counter, or or they can run outside zone, or they can just go straight duo on you and just you know, hog molly you to death. And if you look at the personnel packages this year, we've seen a lot more eleven, and that's basically because Ingram's been gone. They've spent. 61% of their time in 11 personnel compared to 43% last year. But even with that, they still have seen their 21 and 22 packages be the same. And in fact, they've been using a fullback more this year because they've been trying to, you know, get Kamara comfortable in that role that Ingram so, you know, commonly dominated in. And like you said, when you have that effective fullback, in case of the Saints at Zach Lyme, you know, you're able to have success against those heavy boxes. And it really wears down a defense. You know, when we mm-hmm. talk about it, anytime you get these guys fighting, like, like that it it slows you down it wears you down it makes you slower in space and also forces you to play closer to the line which opens up area of the fields and so so far this year the saints have spent 21 percent of their snaps in either 21 or 22 personnel showing that the fullback is not dead in the league surprisingly because you look around at some of these teams there's not even one on the roster okay so what percentage of snaps does that leave for three or four receivers or even an empty set so far this year do you have that so, so far, I've gone up to 13. So, 13 personnel has only been 1% this year compared to 9% last mm-hmm. year. So, and like I said, a lot of those adjustments have been you look at the offensive uh, set in terms of the receivers and tight ends. This year, they're a little bit more confident in the tight ends with Ben Watson and Josh Hill, where last year it was Kobe Fleener who has had a career of injury problems and concussions. So, you're more confident in Ben Watson. And then it's also a you've got a rookie, Traquan Smith, and a first year Cameron Meredith in terms of coming back from injury. So, you're slowly working them in so you've seen less of those almost completely empty sets for the saints uh really down in that one percent mark i do expect some of that to continue to increase and this could be a game where you see that where the saints run you know more 13 and do a you know a 5-0 protection and try to take advantage of you know the ravens running that you know zone defense that you'll run because of all the blitzes okay so uh, let's talk about Ingram then for mm-hmm. a moment in terms of what, what he brings. Obviously a power back. Saw him a little bit in the Redskins game, but tell us a little bit about what he brings to the offense that's different from from Alvin. The, the cool thing about Ingram is he's a guy that can do everything well, but because he isn't flashy, he's undervalued. And, and this is just any position in the league. You have a guy who – you know, is it going to be the one you see rattling off that 70-yard run like Kamara's going to do? So he, he doesn't get hyped up as much, but he can, like I said before, he can run inside zone, he can run duo, he can run outside. But his biggest strength has been the fact that he's been able to, like you said, run in those power situations, those short yardage, those goal line. And you look last year where the Saints were able to have a lot of success 
when it came to scoring touchdowns in the red zone from their running game. A lot of that was Ingram's ability inside in these power runs and running behind uh, Larry Warford, Max Unger, Andres Pete, and then Ramchek and Armstead there on the edges. And, and Ingram also provides something that is terribly underrated, in my opinion, in this league. And he is one of the best blocking running backs in the NFL, bar none. You know, um, he can pick up a blitzer and negate them and not just pick up a blitzer and stop them, but he's really good at rerouting a blitzer to opening up a throwing lane. And that, to me, is one of the most underrated parts of mm-hmm. a actual block because not only are you stopping the pressure, but you're moving the pressure out the way and creating a throwing lane is the ultimate goal of a block anyway. You're not just doing it to stop a pass rush. You're trying to open up multiple throwing lanes for the quarterback, and he does that so well. That's something they've missed. And this doesn't mean that Kamara's bad at blocking, but that was just a huge strength for Ingram. So when he's in, going against um, these various blitzes I'm anticipating the Ravens using, he's going to be key if he can return to being that guy that they trust so they don't have to keep in an extra tight end and chip the edges. They're, they don't have to play Michael Thomas close and run crack by uh, crackback blocks with you know whether it be Traquan or Ted Ginn or anything like that they're going to trust that they can just leave Ingram back there to be the six man to block and I think that's going to be critical and he can also do chip and release and he's quietly and this will surprise you but if I pull up right now would you consider in your mind when you think about Ingram as a receiving threat uh no not for the for his career but I know he's got a decent yards per catch this year if I recall Yeah, but if you look over the past four years, he actually has the best catch percentage in terms of all four years combined of any running back. Wow. Yeah, he's average in both in two of these years. uh, The most two, he is eighty one point seven percent and seventy nine, and then two years before that, eighty three and eighty. In each of those years, he's had at least thirty six targets, and in the most recent three years, minimum of forty five catches. So we're not talking about limited opportunities. He's a very successful screen player as well but it goes back to him he's not flashy he's not the guy that's going to kill you on an 80 yard run but he's going to get the first down he is really good at converting for the first down and that's what makes him so valuable he isn't the same as a Camaro who's going to be that dynamite explosive player who really pops off on you but he's going to just slowly wear you down to where you just you're going to play against him you're just going to go, I hate this guy he always gets the first down he always gets the extra yard that's what brings the value for Ingram he's just that all-around good player yeah, the five yard uh, yard per five year yard per carry average looks like it's around four point six or four point seven as well. So before this year, where he's only played a few snaps, uh, that is truly outstanding. So mm-hmm. okay, um, well let's move on to the other skill position players. We talked about tight ends a little bit earlier, so I want to get back to that and, and, and make sure we hit it. Ben Watson, ex Raven last year, obviously had an injured injured year, and then he uh, was among the Ravens' leading catcher. Might have been number one last year in receptions. Uh, who do they trust as a blocker in the group? Both Josh Hill and Ben Watson are guys that they believe can fill that role. And, and for a while, they had a couple other guys like Michael Hoa Amanui, who they got from the Patriots, who mm-hmm. has had an injured series. So he, he's kind of out of the picture now. But they trust both of them. Um, I wouldn't go as far as to rate either guy as you know this great, phenomenal blocker. I mean, but I, I think that they're dependable enough to make a play. And – one of the things that makes them successful is because you're forced to focus on the Camaras and the Ingers and the Thomases, you know, they don't get a lot of 
looks per se. They don't get a lot of energy and game planning devoted against them. So they're not regarded highly as blockers. So you're not seeing them get set with hard edges and they're not regarded highly as receivers. So they're not drawing your best defenders and they can sneak out. And, you know, we've seen the saints recently use a couple of screen plays to Josh Hill, the tight end, and he's gone for big gains, 15, 20 yards, just because he's that, you know, <laughs> what was he? Number six in terms of down the chart of guys we're going to defend and look for. So, you know, uh, neither guys that I'm going to anticipate killing at all. And in fact, if you look at their numbers so far this year, I think Ben Watson is your top there. But even in terms of top, he's only got 187 reception yards and no no touchdowns. And then Josh Hill's got one touchdown, I think 120 yards, something like that. Neither, neither of those are spectacular, but they're solid. You know, and if you talk about reliability, you know, uh, Josh Hill has called 100% of his passes so far. He's 8 for 8, and then Ben Watson has called 77%. It obviously helps having a guy like Drew Brees who might have the best ball placement in the NFL, yeah. but you still got to have the receiver catch the ball. You know, I mean, in the end, you still got to have the guy catch. So they're both reliable. They're nothing flashy. They're not guys that are going to slay you down the field. Obviously, the Ravens are familiar with what Ben Watson can do when he's healthy, a reliable guy, and that's what they've kind of had from him. And, you know, neither are going to win the game, but they can help. So. Yeah. So in terms of how the Saints have attacked between level two and level three in the defense, so behind the linebackers, that's been a problem for the Ravens in their base mm-hmm. set with their base two. And you may have seen that on, on tape yourself. How much has Breeze really tried to attack that part of the field? Well, it kind of varies game by game, and you're mentioning the hole, that that mythical spot in the middle of the field that gets left out. The entire reason the Tampa 2 was designed is because the hole got picked on, and I think that's an area that the Ravens have left open on a lot of plays, and the Saints in those situations like to do a couple of things. They like to run the tight ends on seam routes, little quick seams. Uh, You saw last week against the Redskins where – you know, they attacked with a four vertical concept is actually the play that Drew Brees won the record on. But they ran Dan Arnold there, a lesser known tight end. And he he basically ran a deep bender across that. And he was wide open as well, should they have chosen to go there. And you know, they'll also run quick slants to Michael Thomas to get behind the linebackers. And they, as an organization, they believe Michael Thomas might be the best slant receiver in terms of that route in the NFL. They, they trust him to where if he is covered with your two best players, he's going to make the catch and his catch percentage so far this season speaks to that. Mm-hmm. And that, that's kind of the things that you can look to do. Another concept that you, you got to watch out for is the Texas concept, the angle route for the running back out of the backfield, going over the middle behind your linebackers. Camara is not a guy you want to allow to get that. You either need to chip him at the line as he tries to release, or you drop a guy back to cover the hole. They have a lot of options and, one of the things that makes Sean Payton so difficult to defend against is he doesn't just attack it in one way. Like I, there's no, I can't just give you one set of things they do because they do different looks every time. And that's, it's so hard to defend against Sean as he's constantly manipulating you. He'll throw out, throw outside the hashes. And as soon as you start adjusting to defend outside, he attacks you through the middle with Drew Brees and whether it be Kamara or Ingram or, Thomas are a slew of different names and you know we've seen Drew will definitely spread the ball around so in terms of defending that area you know I wonder if you see more of a a spy situation just for the hole or maybe instead of running just a typical cover two you see you guys maybe run more Tampa two to try to protect against that because as I've said uh, Drew is attacking the short to intermediate parts of the field right now not a ton of deep shots he's only even attempted four shots over 30 yards so far this year and none have been completed 
and those are air yards, by the way. He's had 60-yard passes, but they've been yards after catch situations. Mm-hmm. You know, So the short to intermediate is where you have to really defend against. That said, this could be the game where you finally see a, a tee pass get completed. But you know, right now, I would think that that would be you know one of Wink's focuses is defending that middle area of the field where Drew has had so much success in his career. Yeah, well, once again, we don't want to talk too much about the Ravens on a show like this, but I will say the only guy that the Ravens can really trust to guard that middle of the field is Anthony Levine, who's the dime back. But they, he's been mm-hmm. very effective at doing it. Had six PDs in two consecutive games and really was, uh, you know, is, emerged as one of the team's best defensive players. It was a special teams player until a couple of years ago. Anyway, we, we'll, we'll move on from that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the offensive line then. So obviously it is a great offensive line. Starts with Teron Armstead on the left side. Sixth season now, you know, he, he – I remember him being a developmental mm. pick as a third round pick. And a lot of people really questioned whether he was a reach at that level. You know, they did. And he's one of those guys. And I know every team has this and there's going to be a bias here as I cover this team. So I study him so much. I see him so much, but even don't take my opinion for it. Go, uh, you know, ask somebody like Duke Manyweather, who is one of the most respected names when it comes to O-line evaluation and training. And he'll tell you, you know, Tehran is a top three to top five left tackle in this league. And his problem has been health. And he hasn't been able to stay consistently healthy. He's had hip issues. He, he's had just a slew of nagging little things. And, you know, a lot of that was simply because he's so athletic. And, you know, if you go back and look at his combine, I'm not going to sit there and bore you guys with some of his combine numbers, but he put up one of the best combine performances for an offensive lineman ever. We're talking about a guy 300 pounds running like a 4'7". I mean, tremendous power, tremendous speed, lateral agility, short area quickness. He has it all. Burst, you know, strength in his hands, grip strength. But he wasn't able to stay on the field consistently. And, in fact, he's never played a 16-game season. The most he's ever played was 14, and that's going back to his second year in the league. And he is coming out of, you know, a pretty lesser-known school, to put it lightly. Arkansas Pine yeah, Bluff. Yeah, Pine Bluff. It's not exactly where you go to you – know, it's not Power 5 by any means. But he's been a he's been a mainstay there, and it's a shame because he's a guy with Pro Bowl All Pro potential, and this might be the year if he stays healthy. And he did a lot of things with uh, Duke Mannyweather and Patrick Brennan to change the way that you know he, he trained in the offseason to really focus on what was causing those injuries. And he truly believes he's gotten those things fixed, and hopefully he stays healthy this year. But he's a guy that can pull uh, as well as anybody in the screen game. He can down block with strength. He can run, you know any blocking scheme that you need him to run from a power or zone, you know, type thing. And to me, and even by various analytics, he's rating as one of the top offensive linemen of the year. And I think that for him, his confidence has also come back. And that's a big thing for a lot of players that you can't really chart. You know, you and I will spend all this time going through plays and here's a stale, this is a positive rep, this is a negative rep. But, you know, can you really chart how confident a guy is in his ability in terms of on the field? But you talk to him now. He's very confident in, in his play, and you can see that returning. And, and he's had great performances against guys like Kerrigan and Miles Garrett. I mean, he's going against a lot of talent and had a lot of success so far this season. So he, he's leading that group, and, and that group is definitely not without its, its other stars. Ryan Ramchek, a second-year player, came in. He's definitely not the um, developmental story that Armstead was. He's a technical master. I, I don't know if I've, in, in recent memory, seen a rookie guy from a technical standpoint that was as polished as he was. And he, you know, like any rookie, he's got room to grow, but 
really good. You got a pro bowler in uh, Larry Warford there, right guard. And, you know, he might not be as versatile as some of these other guys, but he's a hogmo. I mean, he, he's the guy that's going to punch you in the chest and move you. And he's been real effective at this, this year. You got Max Unger, who is the oldest on the line, that veteran, but still a, a good player. You know, because he's aging, he can struggle a little bit with interior speed. But that's also why you've surrounded him with two really good young guards in Larry Warford and Andres Pete. And, you know, Andres Pete's an interesting one because you ask Saints fans, he should be a pro bowler, but he's probably the fourth best on the squad. And he consistently ranks out pretty well. You know, I don't I don't have him on the Pro Bowl level like I do Armstead, but, you know, to use another analytic, I like to spread it around on analytic love. Uh, he had a 9 and a 10 in the past two years in AV for pro football reference, which is Got very it. good numbers. Uh, so he's a quality player. He's a young player. And all that said, he's the fourth best lineman on the on the entire line. So that kind of gives you an idea that this offensive line, now that it's healthy, is one of the better units in the league. You can see that by their passing numbers and their running numbers. And uh, they're definitely a force to be reckoned with so far this season. Okay, I mean, I would certainly agree with you that they're one of the best in the business. And I didn't mean to put down Armstead in terms no, of no, the stretch not at all. pick. I mean, you get 11 games out of Teron Armstead per year the last four years at his level. I'll, I'll take that any day. Yeah, I mean, uh, and it's me... not an insult. I mean, anytime you have a guy, especially small school guys, because I, I can tell you, I did my first draft guide ever. I, I, I've always been a guy who tries to chart and study players, but I actually produced my own draft guide and went through hundreds of players. And it makes you realize, one, how difficult it is to do in terms of how time-consuming it is, and two, how many people you simply don't have time to do. You know, and – you know, I realize one person, you, you talk about teams having a, a scouting department of a couple dozen individuals who are able to go through all these colleges, but there's simply so many players out there and so many schools, it's almost impossible to get all of them down and really find that stud. So, you know, uh, kudos to the Saints. And when it comes to UDFAs and mid-round draft picks, they've had a lot of success finding those diamonds and, and putting them onto the field and having success. And, you know, Teron Armstead simply in a long string of guys like Jari Evans and Carl Nix you know, Zach Streif that they've been able to find and either turn them into long-term starters or even all pro-level talents. So I, I think that's definitely the difference between the really top front offices and the and the mediocre ones. And the Saints certainly proved it with last year's draft. DaCosta has been a small school guy with the Ravens for years. And of course, both their monsters in the middle, Brandon Williams and Michael Pierce, are small mm -hmm. school guys. Go back, Lardarius Webb came from Louisiana, of course, was a small school guy at Nichols mm -hmm. State. Uh, they've had tremendous success there, too. So I, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. And, and the way that DaCosta has described the process often is that they, they will be only one guy who's really seen that prospect. And then they'll have to kind of convince other scouts of what they've seen and, and you know, d take them to the tape and, and do the things necessary to kind of build a consensus that this guy ought to be drafted. But it's, it's, it's very well done. I think that they do a good job with it. Um, you know, they've got a couple of new guys this year. Zach Sealer, a seventh-round pick, who's Ozzy's last pick, is from Ferris State in Mix Michigan. And their sixth-round pick, they had a, uh, a tackle from – where did he play? Wagner. So, uh, you know, they're still drafting small guys. Big believer in any way. Well, I'll say this. I know this. we're trying to focus on the Saints, but, you know, mm -hmm. I know the running joke is Joe Flacco's elite, yada, yada. But the reason he's been able to keep going this long and why you can be confident in Lamar Jackson in the future is because y'all have put so much resources into trying to build that offensive line. So, you know, whether it be small school guys or big school guys, power five, effectiveness is all that matters in the NFL. There you so. go.
And and consistency. I know I, I don't mean to put down the scouting academy, but the scouting academy is very much into trait based stuff. And mm-hmm. I know you knew from your charting, and I certainly believe it being a play-by-play offensive line score, that consistency is the, really the more important element. And I don't want to judge a baseball player by the longest home run he ever hit. I don't want to judge an offensive lineman by the worst sack he ever gave up or the best block he ever made. I want to judge him by how often and how many. Oh, no yeah. doubt. I, I'm with you. There's a lot of schools of thought, and that's also one of the reasons why they teach us to, you know, do at least 200 snaps you know, try to get four or five games under to try to find that consistency because and we're also always going to have that bias i mean you know with me being a guy who loves line play and defensive line there just sometimes where i'm going to fall for that flashy d lineman even though he loses 10 reps in a row if he can bend that edge and get to the quarterback man there's something there we got to go after him so you know that's just the nature of the game though all right, very very cool. Let's go back to one player you mentioned earlier, which is Max Unger. Now he he came over in the Jimmy Graham trade, and the, mm-hmm. the main piece in that was the thirty one that they ended up using on the guy who ended up in Miami, who's who's uh, Stefan. Yeah, I think that was pick twenty eight, Stefan Anthony. Yeah, was it thirty one? Uh, it, it was in that range. It was a late first. So okay. yeah, Stefan Anthony, big fail on that one, but. That was. Um, but did it game. end up being a bad trade? Is the point they they missed on the thirty on the on the on the pick? But with with Unger versus Graham in terms of relative value relative to cap, I think they might have done better with Unger. Well, I think from a value standpoint, the Saints won the trade hands down. You know, uh, you traded for a quality center that you've had for years. He's thirty two now, so getting a little bit long in the tooth, but you had for years quality guy and a first round pick. From a value standpoint, that's an instant win for New Orleans, regardless of if Jimmy Graham went and blew things up in Seattle, which he did not. You know, um, value was there. And I, I think even a one-to-one trade, and this is simply my personal opinion, I value a quality old lineman over a quality tight end. Uh, I think having a great tight end is very important. But, yeah, this game, even in all of its grandeur and, you know, passing and all this flashy stuff, is still one up front. Mm-hmm. You, you do not win this game if you do not have a decent O-line and a decent D-line. And that doesn't mean you have to get 60 sacks a season or, or your offensive lineman have to get 10 pancakes each. But you do have to say, to use your word earlier, consistency. You have to be effective up front. And the Saints weren't. I mean, Drew Brees was starting to get pressured more and more than he was used to seeing. And, you know, for a guy that's aging, you know, you need to give him the best, not hope that you can string things along. And you know, when you got guys like Brian De La Puente starting at center and things like that, it's time to move on. And, you know, uh, Jimmy was a great player in New Orleans, and yet the Saints offense kept clicking, kept being top five and everything, and continues to be top five without him. So I think the Saints won, even with the Stanford Anthony pick not working out. Yeah, and, and I agree with that. I, I wonder if 10 years from now, and maybe maybe even sooner than that, that Jimmy Graham is going to realize, hey, I, I maybe blew my Hall of Fame chance by not staying here in New Orleans, where it, it could have been – even flashier numbers. Yeah, I mean, people forget that Jimmy, and I think Jimmy's talented, but, you know, you're only as good as the opportunities that you have. Jimmy was going catch for catch, stat for stat for Rob Gronkowski every game, and you're going to do that in a Sean Payton offense. You're not going to do that up in Seattle with a you know power run scheme based around Marshawn Lynch. And I think Russell Wilson is one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. But, you know, like I said, and we're, we're rabbit trailing like crazy. I'm sorry. I'm real bad about this. That's fine. But, but, yeah, I think that Jimmy 
you know, possibly did cost himself there. And he's having himself a quietly good season up there in Green Bay, trying to revive a little bit of his career. But, you know, had he stayed in New Orleans 10 years, averaging the numbers he did, I do think that he would have had Hall of Fame consideration instead of just really good consideration. Right. All right. So let me let's ask one last question about the offense here, which is who's the player that Ravens fans maybe don't know about that you think matches up well with them? I don't, we didn't even talk about the receivers yet, so we need to do that anyway. But who's the player the Ravens fans uh, don't know about that matches up well against them? Well, um, to be completely honest with you, in terms of don't know about and I think the matchup well part is, is it's tough for me to give you one answer because the Saints spread the ball around so much. You look at a guy like Traquan Smith, the rookie, he had three catches for 130 yards, two touchdowns. That's a highly successful day for Sean Payton's guys because he doesn't force feed generally anybody uh, with the exception of, you know, Thomas having two, the first two games where he had like 28 total receptions, you know, generally you, you just spread it out and everybody's got four, 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 three, two, and then, you know, some ones here and there. Uh, I think though, that's where you kind of see the potential for success. You talk about the short intermediate of the field, Cameron Meredith out of the slot, and then Traquan at that flanker position gives you a lot of options. And, you know, one of the things that I think that you could see them attack with is maybe the Yankee concept. So that's a deep in route with a post route over the top. So maybe hitting you with Traquan going over the top in a post, and then Michael Thomas, who, you know, we talked about his slant ability. I don't know how much you've gotten to watch Michael Thomas. Is there anybody better at finding space on a crossing route right now in the NFL? There's you know, no nobody better at getting the ball right to the right spot like Michael Thomas. Yeah, and, you know, his ability to find spaces and zones, especially on things like crossing patterns, make him deadly. But we can't really talk about him because everybody's heard about MT. But I, I would have to give the nod there to guys like Traquan Smith and Cameron Meredith. But I don't think either one of them are going to have like 10 reception games where they just kill you. But they're the guys who you're going to forget about. And in the second quarter, they're going to have this 30-yard play, potentially. And that's because there's so many other weapons and the Saints do so well against a zone defense historically. And it gives the opportunity for those guys to really have breakout-type performances. All right. All right. The Yankee concept sounds like something that would particularly expose Raven weaknesses in that in that hole between level two and level three that you're you're really trying to clear out with the post route. It's, it's a high low read and the read there is on the safety. You're either you want to make the safety jump the dig route and if he does you go over the top of him, but if the safety sticks back, well then you got a pretty easy pass to hit over the middle to Michael Thomas who can catch just about anything. So it puts your safeties in a really tough spot. They have to play very fundamentally sound or you can get wrecked on that high low read. All right. All right. Very good. Uh, other receivers you want to talk about before we move on? Maybe tell, tell us what Michael Thomas has meant to the team this year. Yeah, sure. I think with Michael Thomas and I know I have this. I'll go ahead and throw this out there. Michael Thomas, in terms of the routes he's running, it's the one through sixes. They're not using Michael Thomas on the seventh or nines. To be fair, they're not really using anybody on the seventh or nines because, as I said, they're not really throwing down the field like that. You know, so I'm not saying Michael Thomas can't do it, but where he's killing everybody are the slant comp sets, the uh, comeback routes, the quick out routes, and the digs, and then the crossing patterns. That's where he's being so effective. And, you know, even if you talk about where there's these short passes, yada, yada, doesn't matter. The fact that he's catching at 94% right now is simply unheard of. I mean, that's, you know, if you go look in the history of the NFL, guys who've gotten a minimum of 40 targets, the only people who even have above 80% are running backs. Running backs, yeah. So what he's doing, and, and I'm not saying that he's going to be able to keep this pace because if he's able to keep that throughout the season, it'll be bonkers. But what he's doing right now is simply 
you know, taking advantage of openings and zones that defenses present. And he's also very good at the line of scrimmage against man because he's very physical. And he, he's, he talks a lot of trash, man. And <laughs> a lot of people have different views on trash talk, but my main thing is this. If you can back it up, do whatever you want to do. He gets <laughs> in your guy's head, and he's going to win at the line of scrimmage because he's physical. And you look at him, you know, from a stature standpoint, he's 6'3", 215. So he's not that typical big split in you worry about overpowering you, but yet he does because he's a great hands fighter. So when it comes to his release, whether it be at the stem or from the line of scrimmage, he's able to form separation generally about a yard and a half, which is just enough for Drew Brees to hit him right there and get him in that yak opportunity so he can get some yards after catch. And right now, until a team starts putting more focused bracket coverage on him, we saw the New York Giants do that a little bit, and you even saw some more zone coverages to bracket Thomas against the Redskins, you're going to slow him down. Over the past two weeks, he's only caught uh, eight passes on nine targets. He's still got a buck, uh, like a buck 21 yards, no TDs. You know, still catching like 90-something percent there. So that's definitely slowed down, but that also meant that they had to focus efforts and draw resources away, which meant guys like Traquan Smith had 130 yards receiving. Guys like Josh Hill were uncovered on screen passes. So, you know, it, it's a um, damned if you do, damned if you don't. I don't know y'all's policy yeah. on language. So I apologize. Uh, go, go crazy. <laughs> okay. So uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't for Thomas on how you're going to cover him. And it, it's almost kind of like Julio. It, it might be more beneficial just to let Thomas have his 12 catches if you cover the entire field than to leave these wide open gaps for guys like Kamara, Traquan, and everybody else to take advantage of. So it'd be really interesting to see how you guys address that given your propensity to blitz, which leaves less defenders in the back end. Yeah, the Ravens honestly have not used numbers in the same way, but we don't need to get into that right now. I will say this about Thomas. He's averaging 6.7 yards per game played, per, per receptions per game played. That works out to almost 108 catches per year in his two years plus five games in the league. Just an unbelievable, obviously Hall of Fame pace at this point, but we'll see where it, where it lasts. He's going to need a good quarterback the second time around. But uh, terrific to- start to his career. Just to give you, you know, one more. I mean, you look at his yards per reception are, are fine, but even his, his yards per target are in that, you know, higher end range. So he's not just running two yard routes and catching it and going. I mean, he's he's finding depth in the defense. Yeah, I look at I, he's twelve point four, twelve point oh, eleven point three in three years. I mean, that's a, basically what I would look at at a very good tight end in terms of yards per reception, a possession receiver, which is really what he is. And, you know, obviously you catch that many balls and you catch the ball that consistently, 80.6%. Uh, sorry, that's not right. He's over 80% catch rate for his career, I believe now. Very yeah, close he anyway. Is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, you're looking at yards per game. I see you there on pro football reference. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I'm looking at. All right. Very good. Very good. So the other receivers, anything to say? Uh, like I said, uh, the receiving group is, is nothing flashy. I mean, uh, y'all took the Saints slot guy for about three years before he had kind of a, a down season for personal reasons in Willie Sneed. They replaced him with Cameron Meredith, who I feel is just now starting to heal up uh, for that injury he had with the Chicago Bears. And he's starting to get into the swing of things. He spent, he's your primary slot. He spent about 75% of his snaps in the slot. So that's where you're going to see him be a threat. And then Traquan is kind of that guy that you're seeing Ted Ginn at his age still still contributing, but kind of getting phased back a little bit. And the young guy, Traquan Smith, taking those uh, flanker snaps. 
Okay, so they still had him listed on the outside as one of the starters on the depth chart, but I know that's unofficial, and and who they're playing is who they're playing. Ted yeah. Ginn has been around, that's for certain, 33 years old at this point, but uh, uh, is he doing has any more return duties, or is he totally done with that? Well, the, the returner, if there's one area that the Saints just don't know what they're doing right now in terms of they don't know who's going to be that guy, and it has been this way going all the way back to minicamp, it is returns. They are... That, that's the weakness. You want to find a weakness on the team, that, that's it. And Ted Ginn's done some, but there's been some muff opportunities. You you had Tommy Lee Lewis doing it for a while. He's no longer around. You even got Taysom Hill doing some kick return duties. You've got Alvin Kamara back there. So they are finding the option. Right now, I'm not expecting Ted Ginn to be back there because he's had some uh, bobbled punts, which is certainly not the first time in his career. But, you know, you could see him if they are not wanting to put maybe Alvin Kamara at risk or whoever they had decided to put in the back end for those situations. Now, you mentioned Taysom Hill. Talk about him a little bit because I know we had a question in the mailbag coming up anyway about usage for him and how to defend against him. Talk about him a little bit. Well, so far Taysom's been, you know, there's no word for it, and I don't mean this in a derogatory. He's been a gimmick guy. You know, he, he comes in, Drew Brees goes out wide, and it's him and Kamara, and they're running just a read option. And now the thing is, you know, Taysom Hill is quietly a guy that you don't want to run against. Uh, he's 225 pounds and 6'2". For a running back, and, and he's built, if you look at his speed numbers, he's faster than Christian McCaffrey. <laughs> he's stronger than uh, Mark Ingram in terms of physical bench power. I mean, he's almost like a Cam Newton light, you know, and, and in terms of his running ability, he, he doesn't have the ability to just barrel over a linebacker like Cam does, but you know, he can be forceful there, and they've used him mostly in read options. He's had a couple of passing opportunities, including one that could have been a touchdown, uh, I believe was the Cleveland game or the Falcons game. Um, you know, you watch so much tape here, you start forgetting things. But one of those games where he had an opportunity to throw a touchdown, he just overthrew it just a little bit to the tight end. But um, that's something that you can see them try to open up more and more. One thing about him, and Sean Payton mentioned this this uh, past week, even though he has got a lot of efficiency, um, Another great resource to check out is Sharp Football Stats, and they use uh, Sports Info Solutions. In terms of efficiency, Taysom Hill is, you know, otherworldly efficiency. I think his efficiency rating is well over 70% as a runner, which is just nutso numbers. But he's also not making the best decisions at times either. So there's this play against the Redskins, a uh, third down. He gets the first down, but if he hands it to Kamara, Kamara's got a 60-yard touchdown with never being looked at, not being breathed at. Taysom Hill chooses to run at three defenders. You know, you might be able to get away with that on some teams. I don't know if you're going to be able to get away with that running the option at Terrell Suggs. So, you know, it might be something in practice where they focus on, look, if you want to run this play, I'm going to need you to be, you know, cognitive what that safety's doing is he coming down the box if so make sure you read that hand it off but if not Taysom has been using a lot of these opportunities and until a team finally stops him they're going to keep use him using him as that read option runner and uh like i said so far it's been effective now with with Taysom Hill it sounds like the the use of him is very similar to the use of Lamar Jackson in terms of Flacco splits wide Jackson comes into the backfield it's usually some sort of read option play and mm -hmm. more often than not I would say Jackson is running the ball and they at first they were only doing it on first and second down and like so I'd like you to speak to down usage for Hill but then just in the recent games for Jackson they've started to use him on third down more to try and pick up third and three or less how what sort of down and distance situations are they using him in and and how does breeze seem to be reacting to it well uh, breeze is just that guy where he's good with whatever as long as it brings you know wins 
forth. Uh, as far as where they're using him, uh, it's been equally spread out. So uh, he's got 12 runs on the season, uh, I believe. You can correct me because I know you're on Pro Football Focus. But each, uh, it's 4-4-4, four, four, and four, if I'm remembering right, where four are on first downs, four on second downs, four on third downs. So they've used him in third and short situations. They've used him on first and ten. They have um, – they, they – one thing Sean is, and he's kind of like Bill in this way, Bill Belichick from New England, he doesn't like to allow tendencies to be nailed down. Mm-hmm. So he will run plays in certain ways to where you can't just say, okay, Taysom Hill's going to come in on this first and 10, and he's going to try to get us for four yards, so we're going to stack it. So he's going to you know, run it a certain way where that's not as likely to, you know, for personnel decisions, it makes it harder for the defensive coordinator to prepare for. So like I said 4-4-4, four, four, and four, and I just looked it up on Sharp Football, that is his um, – Numbers. So on right now on the third downs, he's averaging 12 yards a carry on a third down run, seven yards a carry on first down runs, and then 3.5. Oh, man, really cutting it down there for us on those. So having success really at any time running the option uh, when it's getting called, a lot of credit has to go to that offensive line I've talked about before, though, opening up those running lanes. Okay, they haven't used him as a receiver yet. I'm, I'm taking – No, they have, they have lined him up as an H-back, and they have run him on some routes and used him as a blocker. We've yet to see him actually be used as a true receiver. But that is something to look at down the road because in practices, even going back to training camp, they have lined him up in that opportunity. So, But that might be one of those things where it happens twice all season. You know, and maybe mm-hmm. one it turns into a touchdown and one ends an incomplete pass. It's not something I expect to be a regular uh, usage type deal, whereas the read option has become a regular usage. You will probably see this read option done against Baltimore and maybe you see a gimmick type thing where they use him as a, a, a receiver as a tight end or something, but I, I'm not going to go ahead and go out on a limb and say they are. That's okay. You throw it out there once, the defensive yeah. coordinators for the next four or five weeks go yeah. nuts over it. And it only has to work once before it becomes this thing you got to prepare <laughs> for. So Yeah. Uh, all right. And, and one other thing, when Breeze splits wide, is he told not to move at all, or does he intentionally try and move behind – the spot on the field where Hill would take the ball. So is, is there at least the possibility of a backwards pass followed by a forwards pass? I, I'm a big, maybe nut about that. I, if, if I don't see that, it's like you're giving it away. You're, you're, yeah. you're saying, is it, yeah. Well, look, my friend, Drew Brees is 39 years old. <laughs> there will be a riot on Poitras if they try to get that man physical with any cornerback in the league. Uh, so generally on these plays, you're going to see him just stand still and be there. Now, as a defense, you are still going to have to put somebody over there because as soon as you don't, because how they'll usually align it is they'll have Drew Brees out wide and then usually somebody like Michael Thomas or Tracon with him. Mm-hmm. So in the event that you say, hey, we're going to let you have Drew Brees out wide, that's where the pass is going to come into play. You throw it to Drew and then Drew throws it to somebody else. But right now, as long as the defensive coordinator keeps putting a cornerback out there to meet with him, that's not going to happen because they're not going to risk Drew getting hurt on a trick play. Uh, Now, the moment that it's not defended, that becomes an option. See, here's here's my point about this. If you drop back Drew Brees five yards, six yards, seven yards behind the line of scrimmage where he's equal or behind to Taysom Hill, then you have a backwards pass situation which can be followed by a forward pass. That Mm -hmm. actually – means you have to defend that more. It keeps yeah. a def- it keeps the corner outside on that. And that's part of the goal is you need to make sure that guy isn't allowed to run free back into the middle of the play to to make a contribution in some other way to to stopping whatever you're trying to actually run defensively in the middle of the field. 
So yeah, typically he's just basically in a normal flanker stance about two yards back. So it's not really far enough. He'd have to move backwards yes. to catch that pass. And I said, I get your point, but as long as defensive coordinators keep giving them a player, I mean, there's no reason for them to do anything. It's you know, as soon as they stop respecting it is when they'll have to make that adjustment. All right. Fair enough. Okay, I want to remind people we're talking to, to Deuce Windham of the Athletic New Orleans. We're going to we're getting into the defense a little bit now. Uh, let's start on the edge. Uh, Cameron Jordan, longtime Saint. He was part of that great 2011 draft, uh, having one of his best seasons. And it looks like he's playing about 90% of the snaps. Talk, talk a little bit about him as a pass rusher. Yeah, and actually that 90% is actually a downtick for him at this point in his career. Mm. Um, he's always been one of those Ironmen. He's 100% of the time type of a guy, and they're starting to scale that back because of the depth they have along the defensive line that they're very happy with. And, you know, as you said, he's having a career year. The sad thing about Cam is he's been forced to play on relatively bad defenses his whole career. So some of his numbers have suffered because of that. For a long time, he was the only guy on the defensive line. So he would just get double and triple team and he might only have seven sacks in the season. And that's not bad. I mean, nobody's going to go and, you know, say that that's not quality, even for a first round draft pick, seven sacks in the season is a good average, but he's a consistent guy who can average double digits. If he's got other players around him. And you saw last year, he got his first all pro nod. He's a three time pro bowler. He's had double digit sacks in three seasons. And generally those are the winning season. He's done that, but a really huge number, his adjusted value for pro football reference is a 17. I mean, that's, that's one of the best players in the league when you, you score that high at that position. And I think pro football focus has him as one of the best guys. I think they had him as the best edge player at his side of the field last year to end the year. And he just, he just does everything well. Defends the run well. He has got uh, a wide wardrobe of move sets, whether it's speed to power or just pure power moves. And he's just a great pass rusher. He is not your, you know, typical – bend the edge and win with elite speed and athleticism. He's more of the, I'm going to continue to annoy you all game long and I'm going to wear you down. And, and then there's just other plays and we've seen him do it multiple times the past couple years where he'll simply pick up the tackle and push him into the quarterback. And I'm not exaggerating. He's thrown linemen into quarterbacks before for sacks. That's not a feat many players in the NFL can do, to throw a 300-pound man into a quarterback to get the sack and never touch the quarterback. That's the type of presence that he provides. And now that the Saints have got Sheldon Rankins in the interior, they've got David Onyemata as a situational three-tech that they really like. They've got Alex Okafor. They've got Marcus Davenport, the rookie. He's on pace for a career year of over 16 sacks. So we'll see if he actually reaches it. Projections this early in the year are basically worthless but <laughs> once again having a great year so far you know dominant in terms of pressure and he's still getting those double teams which has opened up opportunities for the rookie and for guys along the interior to continue to have success uh, even a couple plays against new york where they triple team him had he had the right guard right tackle and had a tight end chipping him so you, you know, know they'll talk about that occurring and and if you if you score offensive line play you see that happening maybe three times a season maybe. yeah it, it's yeah. it's not common but yeah. Any player who draws that type of attention, though, it's worth noting, I feel, because mm -hmm. th there's not many guys that you're going to say, I want to slide protect the right side of my line and chip him to make sure that he's out of the play. You know, and, and another thing I like, I'd like to add here is you look at the Saints' sack numbers. They've had three sacks in the past four games after registering none the first game, and I can explain why uh, as we go on the show. But one thing the Saints have asked their ends to do, and, you know, I – 
with you guys, I'm not sure how much it'll be an impact, but they require almost their ends to chip the running back and the tight end almost every play. Oh, wow. So okay. Even with the sacks that they're getting, a lot of times that's after they've put a hand on another player. And there, there are certainly situations where they pin their ears back and they just rush the passer. But they've seemed to put forth an effort this year to making sure they reroute those short to intermediate passes uh, to allow their secondary to get into position on a lot of zone plays because they've been running a lot of things like Tampa 2, their cover 3s, etc. So just an interesting note there to watch out for. Uh, they will be trying to reroute guys like Collins and the tight ends and try to rough up their day a little bit. Okay, so is that usually combined with a blitz concept that they're trying to they're trying to get, uh, exploit one opening to get somebody to move the quarterback off the spot while they're rerouting these shorter potentially hot reads? A lot of times it's coming from a four man rush, uh, so they will bring linebackers on a, a, as a fifth man blitzer at times. But there are a lot of plays where they are doing it because they are very confident guys like Marshawn Lattimore and they like Ken Crawley. They they like Von Bell, the young safety. They obviously love Marcus Williams and what he's been able to provide in his you know, second year here and first year. But uh, the Saints are not the heaviest blitzing team. I think they're at 27% right now. And that, that's kind of always been one of Dennis Allen's thing. He's not the heaviest blitzer. He's more strategic in how he blitzes. And he'll run a, a fire zone blitz, which just means he blitzes a guy off the edge. And then he'll drop Cameron Jordan back in uh, pass coverage on a three-to-three layer type of coverage. But in general, they're doing that chip, whether a blitz or without a blitz, just because they're trying to throw off the timing of routes. Yeah. All right. You mentioned one thing that really interests me about Jordan, because I think his his career development's actually been very similar to Terrell Suggs. Now, that means he's got some of the same foreground scenery in terms of a Hall of Fame argument that Suggs would have. He needs more background scenery in terms of longevity to get there. But he, he definitely his contribution is a dual contribution. He's got 64 and a half career sacks. So he's not going to get there for that. If you project a fairly long career for him, I think he's still going to struggle to make it to 100 career sacks, which is kind of the minimum, I think, for an edge defender. But what makes him special is that he's one of the better run defenders on the Mm -hmm. edge. Suggs, in part, I think what should make him a first ballot Hall of Famer is he's by far the best run defender on the edge of his era. And and that in the PFF era is going to change a lot of Hall of Fame arguments for players where they might have had a harder time making it before. And I think everybody really believe Suggs is a is a certainly a Hall of Famer at this point, but maybe maybe a first ballot Hall of Famer. I think he's certainly going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer at this point. And I think there's a there's a chance and it all will depend on on longevity for Jordan to see if he gets there or not too. Well to throw something else out there to add to some of the things you're talking about, the analytics have kind of helped open up about something else that he does really well that Suggs has also done well his entire career is getting into passing lanes. So mm-hmm. last year Cameron Jordan had the rare triple double for a defensive end. So he had double-digit tackles, double-digit sacks, but also double-digit pass deflections. So he gets into the passing lanes and gets his hands Mm -hmm. up if he can't get to a quarterback. The last player to get a triple-double for defensive end was J.J. Watt uh, about, I think, four or five years ago. You know, it's not something you see very often. You know, and Suggs has always been that way. There's been seasons where Suggs gets seven, nine pass deflections. And, you know, one here, there, a game, I know it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But when you start looking at a guy in terms of what he's doing over the course of a season, that shows he's making an impact in that area area and it becomes something that you know as an offensive line coach you got to say hey make sure you put extra pressure on this guy to get him out of the passing lane because you know an incomplete pass can end a drive how many of those pds ended a drive so something else he does if he doesn't get to you he's going to try to get his hands up and get in front of that football yeah that's that's always symptomatic of the player the edge defender who 
is very savvy, and he'll know a couple things. First of all, he'll disrupt a lot of screen passes because he knows where he's supposed to be. The mm. second thing is he'll just occasionally take it upon himself to run wide before he rushes the quarterback. Suggs has had a couple peekaboo interceptions against Roethlisberger, specifically where he ducked down and then leapt up. And, and he gets in these in these passing lanes to the outside, not necessarily over for a hot read, but to the outside. Which is, you know, why would he be there? But, but he, mm-hmm. but, you know, I, I, I'm sure Jordan has some of that, and you could, uh, you can speak to that. We'll stop with the Ravens stories. I want to go on. Marcus, <laughs> Marcus Davenport, a rookie. The Saints traded an awful lot to get up to number 14 in this year's draft. I thought, I thought they were going to break my heart and take Derwin James at that point, steal him away from the Ravens at number 16, and it turned out the Ravens stole him away from themselves by trading the pick. But talk, tell us about Marcus Davenport and what he's looked like. Davenport's been interesting. Um... He's a guy that you talk about polarizing draft picks. So even in my draft guide, and this is where I try to push evaluation versus valuation. So I think everybody who scouted Davenport agreed on their evaluation. He had all pro potential. He is he's a guy that if he develops correctly, will wreck the league for years. But the key is can he develop correctly? So for me, I actually had a late second, third round grade because I was so wary of where was he going to go. Because there's a lot of places in this league that a guy like Davenport goes to and never turns into anything. And then there's places that that guy goes to and becomes an all-pro. So coming into New Orleans was a great spot for him because he gets paired up with Ryan Nielsen, the defensive line coach. And um, uh, he uh, Ryan Nielsen has put, what, five guys in the past two NFL drafts uh, when he was with NC State. So he, quite a repertoire. He's now earned himself an NFL coaching job, doing a real good job there. And Davenport – started off and this is what I, I felt that he would do is he's used mostly as a situational pass rusher and by the halfway mark of the season I expected him to start seeing about 65% of the snaps and this last game he saw 57% so he's you know right on that pace and right now he's on pace for about six sacks in the season but it's how he's getting some of these wins because from a technical standpoint when we talk about a guy being raw that that's his thing his Technique still needs a lot of work. So some of the things he had to work on were he he had a propensity to fall step from a two-point stance. He played with a high pad level, didn't display a lot of good counters, things like that. We've already started to see some of those get corrected. He went against uh, Williams for the Redskins, one of the better left tackles in the NFL, sure, and had a lot of success against him. I got a sack fumble, forced multiple pressures from that side, and you know Williams is no slack at all. And it was his ability to start developing some of those counters we talk about where his initial two-arm bull rush doesn't work, so now he you know, he converts to a single arm and then does a swim over. And you know, just adjusting his rush midway through. And I think for a lot of people, surprisingly, it's just been his mental processing has been a lot quicker than we anticipated in picking up his ability in the run game. He has been really good in containment and as a chase down defender from the backside. And we talk about his athletic ability. I mean, the dude is just a monster in terms of wingspan and height, weight, speed, all that stuff. He's got all those numbers that you look for in terms of building an edge defender. So, so far he's been meeting their expectations. You know, when you talk about the price he paid, the price that was paid to get him, you probably want to expect him to become a double-digit sack type guy. But right now, I mean, he's looked really well and exceeded a lot of expectations so far here through five games. And we'll just have to see if that continues moving forward. You know, one thing that helps you when you're playing away game is having a pass rush. And being able to pair a guy like Jordan, who's a veteran now, with a Davenport on the other side, it it certainly helped New Orleans so far this year get to 4-1. and Yeah, that's critical mass and pass rushing. That's a key key concept. Anyway, were, were you surprised that Davenport was a player once they made the trade, or are you expecting a pass rusher once they had traded that much juice to get him? 
my my heart of my hope uh, and heart wanted a quarterback. And I mean, also I wanted with Baker gone, I wanted Lamar Jackson. That, okay. That's who I wanted for the Saints. And there were some connections there. The Sean Payton really liked Lamar Jackson from what I was told, but they fell in love with Marcus Davenport at the Senior Bowl, just what he could be. And the Saints revamped their scouting department uh, a couple years ago, brought in Jeff Ireland to head the scouting department, redid the entire infrastructure. And it, it's one of those things where we now we talk about trust in the process. So when it happened, based on the success that this scouting department has had in recent years, I simply had to go, well, I mean, they, I, I trust them. I mean, you, you look at their track record, they had – I'm sorry. Excuse me. But they had the year before – one of the best draft classes in NFL history, not just the Saints, NFL history. You no, got I agree. The you, know, you, got a, you got the defensive rookie of the year, the offensive rookie of the year. You got a very good right tackle who likely becomes a pro bowler. You got a situational pass rusher. I mean, uh, you got a, a starting safety. I mean, they cashed out. I mean, I, I don't know if they'll be able to replicate that in any time soon, but every team would love to have that type of a draft. So when you when you're able to have that year, and even the year before that was a successful draft, as a analyst or even as a fan, you just kind of have to trust them and say, you know, look, I you know, I know that they know what they're looking for, what they want, and how they feel it's going to fit. And you know, I think it worked out well for him so far. It's only been five games. We we'll have to see how it goes. But if he can get that six, seven sack mark, I think that's a big win for a rookie like him. If you look at the averages of edge defenders from the first round. Six sacks in the first year as an edge defender is way above average. The average is right around 3.74 sacks, uh, depending on what 10-year time frame you want to go and sample from. Sure. And, and the 2011 is actually one of those you know, augments that throws off everything else because everybody in the first round seems to be a, a, a pro ball pass rusher. But in general, first-round guys only contribute three to four sacks a rookie season. So he's already on pace to do better than that. So it's a big win so far. Yeah, well, we, we both know there's a very high flunk-out rate, and it, it looks like very. Davenport has passed the initial flunk-out, which is the biggest first test, is mm-hmm. that you're, you're not a failure. And, you know, he's not an Aaron Mabin or other players that completely, you know, washed out in terms of their NFL careers. Uh, it, it, does he, did they ever slide him inside, or is he a pure and edge guy? Purely an edge um, guy. They have used him inside a little bit. One thing the Saints and Dennis Allen really likes to do is he loves tackle to end stunts. Um, so you'll see Sheldon Rankins. I, I feel Sheldon Rankins and Cameron Jordan have, have one of the best combos in that in the NFL. They've also started using that where they will slide uh, David Onyemata inside and use it, or they, they've even put that were in a couple situations to attack inside as well. Uh, generally, when they want to get their ends inside, instead of sliding them down, they'll run stunts. Uh, now, Cameron Jordan is a guy that they trust to slide down into that three-tech type of role and play that area of the field. Davenport, they're still working on his confidence. One thing about Davenport is right now he's more comfortable pass rushing from a two-point stance. So that makes it a little difficult to start sliding him inside if that's what he's comfortable at, and they're allowing him to work through that as he continues to grow. So not a lot of opportunities there. I think I've charted him maybe four or five plays in that four-eye type of area. Not a lot considering the amount of snaps he's gotten so far you know so i don't know if i could really classify him as being a, a threat there okay and do, do they have a designated under guy on their twists or do they do they mix it up a little bit in terms of who's the under and who's the who's the over uh generally most of the time it's a tackle to end uh, so there's gonna be sheldon rankins david on or maybe alex okafor if they slide him under uh, underneath and one of the reasons being is they really like their interior defensive lineman in terms of technique and power to drive out the guard and the tackle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
even in those situations, and you know, Sheldon Rankins, if you want to play to kind of see how that works, you go to his sack against the Vikings in the playoffs last year. So not only does he clear out the right guard and right tackle for Cameron Jordan, but he also contains, which prevents a Case Keenum from rolling out, and then he goes and gets the sack. So you know, they're very technically sound in the front four, and the front seven has actually been surprisingly very, very good this year with the linebackers coming from being one of the worst linebacking mm-hmm. groups in the NFL to actually pretty good so far this year. But generally, when they run a, a twist and stunt, it's going to come from the inside out. Okay, very good. Okay, so rest and rotation. And we've, we've went through, I think, the, the line into a fair degree in your comments so far. Uh, it looked like Rankins has played about 70% of the times and, and Onyemata about 60% of the snaps. Uh, any concerns there about uh, how much they're playing? No, I think that's about normal for them. And, you know, uh, honestly, a guy like Sheldon Rankins could probably start every snap if he wanted him to. But And how they'll spell them is it's not one of those things where they take them out, play in and play out. Generally, you know, you'll see Onyemata there an entire drive. And then you'll see Rankins has now taken two drives off, so he's all healthy. He's unsucked up all the oxygen he needs, had his Gatorade, you know, put a juicy fruit in his mouth, and now he comes out fresh and he's ready to wreak havoc on your guards. So when they're doing it, it's not necessarily a matchup reasoning for why they're switching out. It's a we're just making sure these guys are 100% come quarter three and quarter four. And you've seen Davenport and Rankins especially – start having their snaps really come in those moments where, you know, now that they're a little worn down, go take advantage, you know, stick the dogs on them and and see what you can do. And you'll see Rankins. I think Rankins will probably be the first three tech you see. And then you'll might see a quarter of them, a couple drives, and then you'll start seeing Onyemata sprinkled in and and they'll just work those guys in and out because they really love the depth of rotation and feel that they can be efficient and effective no matter who's out there. And and before we move off the line, I got to give a shout out to the nose tackles. Nobody gives love to nose tackles anymore. Uh, Taylor Stallworth's got a ha- high ankle sprain, but even Tyler Davis and both of those guys have been doing really well. You know, when you talk about the best run defenses in the NFL, you don't typically think the New Orleans Saints. But in terms of yards per carry allowed, the Saints are averaging 3.1 yards per carry right now. Great start. They are the best team in the NFL, and a lot of that goes credit to the front seven, but those nose tackles that nobody likes to talk about unless you're Vince Warfork. So got to give a little bit of love to those guys. We love to talk about him in Baltimore. I can assure you of that. So that's, uh, that's good to hear. Okay. Well, uh, let's see. I think I asked you some about the show before the show in terms of blitzers from off the line of scrimmage stunts drops into coverage, pre-snap movement. They'll consider those cut four of the key elements of mm-hmm. deception, which do the, do the saints like to use more than the others. They use a lot of blitzers off the line of scrimmage, a lot of stunts, a lot of drops. What do they use? They like to uh, – Dennis Allen likes to change things up. So, uh, you know, we talk about this being a copycat league. So, you guys up there aren't going to be too familiar with seeing a lot of NFC South games. But most people have seen the Carolina Panthers because their defense has been one of the better defenses here in recent memory. Well, one thing that the Carolina Panthers love to do is sugar the A-gap. They like to put two linebackers over each A-gap and either blitz both of them, feign a blitz, drop one back. And the Saints have really started picking that up with Dennis Allen and using that. Uh, so primarily, I would say most of their blitzes are interior blitzes, whether that be Demario Davis, who got a couple of sacks this past game, uh, Manti Teo when he's healthy, and then A.J. Klein might be as your edge blitzer there. And uh, like I said, they switch it up, though. I do like when they show those double A-gap looks. Now, one thing about the Saints is 
I can't recall many times where they bring both those guys. They're going to mm-hmm. drop one back, and typically they're going to bring Davis just because he's the bigger, faster, stronger one. You know, so um, if you're talking about tendencies, that's something maybe you can look for. But they also do a lot of uh, pre-snap looks. So something, and I mentioned this earlier, and I'm glad we can talk about it now. So one thing that the Saints ran a lot of last year is cover three, but not just cover three. They ran cover three match. And cover three match, uh, for those who – aren't aware is simply a cover three system that on the outside, depending on what you're facing, you're going to play man instead of zone. And so if you maybe have got a vertical route, we're going to push that vertical and ride you. Or if, you know, depending on what's going on around, or maybe we've got trips coverage on one side, we're going to switch it to, you know, man coverage and allow the safety to pick up the zone there. You know, we're not trying to do a symposium on cover three coverage, but because they played that so much, Tampa Bay came prepared for that. And Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay really hurt them. Tampa Bay sliced them apart when they ran their cover three because they started running some of those concepts like the Yankee concept and sales and really putting stress on that formation. So one thing that the Saints have done to counter that is they have had a big uptick in Tampa 2 coverage. And that is how they've been able to slow down a lot of these passing attacks because teams have come out and to negate the pass rush, and this is where numbers get deceiving. If you look at sack numbers, the Saints aren't the best. But if you look at pressure numbers, they're at one of the top in the league. So what the teams were doing is they were doing quick passing attacks, you know, out to the flats, out to the short intermediate of the fields to not allow the defensive line to get there. And when you're playing a lot of cover three, especially cover three match, and and if you're bringing these little blitzers, you're going to give up those five, six-yard passes all day long. So they had to start adjusting to that. So one of the things they did is played more Tampa two. They covered the middle of the field where they were getting hit from and also were able to cover the flats, and that's bought them a little bit more time to allow the pass rush to start getting home. And now we're seeing them get, you know, right around an average of, well, exactly an average of three sacks a game. And they use a lot of different looks when they do that. So they'll show a single high look, middle of the field close, and just like you guys will do, they'll rotate that to cover two and go middle of the field open and and throw off your initial pre-snap reads. So you have to really trust as the quarterback what you have on the field at the time. So, I mean, if you're running a spot concept, you have to know before the snap What's going to be open versus the cover three? What's going to be open versus the cover two? And read immediately what's going on because they, just like Baltimore, are going to try to confuse you with pre-snap reads. Now, I don't think they do it as much as Baltimore does. There, There's plenty of situations where they what you see is what you're going to get, and they're either effective or they're not. But just like Baltimore, and, and as you said, it's it's critical – to have that type of misdirection and change things up. That's some one of the things they've started doing this year and have kind of tried to improve their success rates. All right, very good. Well, if they are truly among the top in pressure and they're doing it mostly with a four-man rush you're, you're talking about? Yeah, um, now 27%, according to Sports Radar, is right around, I think that's 12th most blitzing in the league okay that's but, their five plus is blitzing i have a problem with the with the with you the don't like term. calling the fifth man blitz no i don't like calling <laughs> the fifth man blitz. just say five plus man rushing that's all you need to yeah, do okay well if you're only counting five then yeah they they very rarely do a heavy blitz where they bring six plus or anything like that so it's generally if they're if they're bringing an extra man it's just one i'm sorry i didn't make myself clear Five, five plus, I just call it a five plus man rich. A, a blitz is when you additionally try and confuse someone by blitzing somebody off the line of scrimmage. So you either blitz uh, off the slot or you blitz somebody who's at least a couple yards deep off the line. Anyway, that's my, my <laughs> little point here. I know. No, no worries. Every, it's, you know, everybody calls the play different or, or, or worse. These different, no big deal. So for the Saints, um, generally when they're going to come at a blitz, they're going to 
show it and they're going to bring it. So they're going to walk their guy up into the A gap. They're going to walk them into the B gap and they're either going to drop back or they're going to bring it. They're not going to run a lot of delayed blitzes or like I, I noted against the Titans, y'all had a play uh, showed a cover two pre-snap, rotated into single high, and then rotated that safety that was single high back down to the line of scrimmage, and he was a delayed blitzer, which is one of the coolest, most unique looks I've watched all season. Really enjoyed that. The Saints aren't going to do that. Was, that, They're was not, that Jefferson sack? I believe it was Jefferson sack, yeah. And uh, that was – so you're not going to see Marcus Williams go from the line of scrimmage, back, rotate with Von Bell, then Von Bell blitzes. They're not going to get that complicated on you. I love that look. I'd love to see it again against the Saints to see if it works. So, um, but, yeah, they're not going to get that crazy for you. Yeah, lots of personal responsibility in the Ravens system. And it also helps that they've switched the play calling now to Weddle in the secondary, which I think allows for some of that communication to occur that can allow that sort of concept – to happen on the field, to actually be realized. So, mm-hmm. all right, let's let's go back to. I'm always interested in hearing how other teams defend the pass primarily. So, uh, my first question is: Do they play? It seems like they play mostly nickel, but do they play a lot of dime as well? Do they get a six defensive back on the field for a high percentage of plays? Well, when we say nickel, I mean, nickel's become the base in the NFL. I mean, every team basically runs nickel 60% of the time. Saints are no different. You know, it, it might vary here and there. In terms of. Ba- uh, the dime, it's about 10, 15%. You know, for a long time, the Saints ran a lot of dime, and that was just because the linebacker was such a weak group. So they would bring in three safeties and then have, you know, the DBs there as well, or the corners there as well. So now they are trusting more the combo of A.J. Klein and Demario Davis to be on the field. So they're running more nickel than a dime than they would at times. But, you know, dime is still something prevalent. I think now, though, like, and I, I've mentioned this before, they have a lot more confidence in their linebackers when it comes to their responsibilities in both coverage and run defense. You know, so you're seeing guys like Demario Davis and AJ Klein covering well in Tampa too. Even Alex Anzalone, the rookie, and Craig Robertson, uh, you're seeing them do man situations and short routes on uh, linebackers. And one of the things I I think that if there's an area that linebackers and corners have not shown that they can defend well as the crossing patterns and the mesh concepts. Mm -hmm. But right now we're seeing them trust their base and their nickel a little bit more than their dime than they did last year. But I think that was also out of personnel necessity. You simply had no linebackers you trusted to play. So your best guy was, you know, three safeties and then your, your corners. So right now you, they have two safeties that they really like in Marcus Williams and Von Bell. And then you've got the veteran and Kirk Coleman, who's kind of that leader communication guy on the field, knows where everybody needs to be, even if he's not the best athlete there. And you'll you'll, you'll see some plays where you see all three of those guys on the field at the same time. But uh, that, that's becoming a situation where it's you're seeing less and less of it based on personnel. All right. How about, how about zone versus man, press versus off? What, what are they – how do they like to put, put their will in terms of the pass yeah. defense? Uh, in general, the Saints like to run man, and their man is their cover three match. Now, that said, Dennis Allen makes a lot of adjustments, especially in game, and they've switched to more zone based on what offenses are attacking them with. Uh, if they could, if Dennis Allen could pick what he wants to run, he'd want to keep running that that man scheme with single high and and, and then switching it up with some man underneath, some cover two unders. But as long as teams keep attacking the way they have been they've been playing more and more zone defense. Uh, So now good for them that they've been successful doing that. They want to be a man team. They want to press you at the line. They want to jam your receivers and they want to force you to play the long ball and beat guys like Lattimore deep and beat Williams deep. 
But so far this year, that's not what they've been attacked with. So they've been playing more zone than they typically do. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how Baltimore plays that because you got a guy like Willie Sneed, who when he was with the Saints was really, really good at picking out soft spots and zones. Mm-hmm. You know, And he's a guy that you want to play man against. And if the Saints start getting wrecked by the slot, they're going to you know, likely slide a guy like Ken Crawley down there to play that man position. You know, and it's just going to be game by game. Dennis Allen is, while I don't, I won't go as far to say he's one of the better defensive coordinators in the league. One thing he does do really well is he adjusts quickly mid-game. So if his game plan said, man, he's not going to stick to it because that was the game plan. He's going to adjust to whatever he sees from the first couple of drives. That first characteristic I want to see out of my D.C. is the ability to make adjustments in-game. I think Ravens have you know, allowed a lot of sack touchdown in the second half this year, and I think a lot of the credit goes to uh, their new defensive coordinator in terms of that Martindale. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crawley, you mentioned him. I think of him as being an outside corner. He's, he's, you talk about moving him down on the slot as well? Well, they've done that because Patrick Robinson's out. So they brought Patrick Robinson in. He was the answer in the slot, and uh, he went down with a high ankle injury, uh, actually a completely broken ankle, and it's unlikely that he returns this year technically he will be available to ir to return but i I don't foresee that happening and what they were doing was having pj williams man that spot and right now they've just been kind of switching it back and forth so some plays it'll be crawley depending on the matchup and then some plays it'll be pj williams crawley is typically a boundary corner and He's a UDFA. He's one of those guys that you know the Saints were able to find and pick out. He's been a decent, serviceable starter. Last year had a really, really good year, uh, I felt. Uh, put out a lot of good tape. The one struggle he does have is when he plays man deep, he gets a little handsy. You know, and he drew a lot of holding calls and pass interference calls because of that. But, you know, when, when you ask him just to defend man on man, he's, he's pretty good. And, you know, right now he's shown the versatility to slide inside if he needs to. You know, I think from a, you know, personnel point, they would rather have P.J. Williams do it. But if a guy like, say, Snead is having success against Williams, they're going, like I said, they're going to make those adjustments. So last week against the Redskins, I'm sorry, the week before, the, the bye week, always throws me off. The week before, Crawley started off as the predominant guy on the outside. Lattimore went down six snaps in with a concussion. And so they, they were forced to bring in P.J. Hardy uh, to play the outside. P.J. Hardy being, you know, I heard you mentioning a special teamer who kind of rose to the ranks. Well, that's been P.J. Hardy. Uh, I'm sorry, Justin Hardy. P.J. Williams, though, being the guy who usually ran the slot. Uh, for you Ravens fans who want to get giddy over the possibility of a guy being burned, go watch PJ Williams highlight reel against the Falcons. <laughs> and you will um, be writing to your congressman to tell the Ravens to target him. <laughs> and, and if that happens, then you're going to see more movement from Dennis Allen to protect him. Now, in fairness to PJ, he's improved over the past couple games. He hasn't had those same gaffes like when he had to cover Calvin Ridley against the Falcons that ended up in his benching. But depending on how the Ravens decide to attack, you're either going to see P.J. Williams in the slot or Ken Crawley. We do expect Marshawn Lattimore to be back. He's going through concussion protocol right now. Uh, We do believe he will be healthy and good to go. The only reason they're just now going through the protocol is because last week they didn't practice due to the bye. Okay, so absolutely huge it would be if uh, Lattimore could not play. What's he shown in his second season? Obviously, it would have been an incredible ask for him to match that uh, year one he had. Yeah, it would have been, and, you know, I think a lot of that is hype, too, because if I'm being completely honest with you, and this is not – if you learn anything about me, I try to be pragmatic. 
So Lattimore, and Lattimore talks about this. Last year, Lattimore hit a rookie wall. You know, the rookie wall a lot of guys face because there's not as many games. You watch the very end of the last year of the season. This isn't saying that uh, Lattimore did bad. Lattimore wasn't the same. He's a little bit of a step slower. You can tell he's a little bit more ragged, sucking on that oxygen. But if you would have gone to your favorite analytics site, they would have told you he's the best rookie corner we've ever seen. He's doing phenomenal every game. You started to see him show some weaknesses and things that could be targeted. And the first week of the season, and and this is just one of those things, and I think every team sees this, when you have an entire summer to prepare for a team, you know how to pinpoint their weaknesses and attack. And that's what happened with the Buccaneers, and, and they were able to get some good uh, plays on Lattimore, uh, depending on who you go through through charting. My charting has him given up one touchdown and over 100 yards that game. But since then, he's been much improved and gotten better and better and is returning back to his defensive rookie of the year level form. And uh, I think for him, it's been an adjustment because last year, a lot of his wins were coming just from the fact that he's a better athlete than basically every receiver out there. He's faster in the short area of the field. He's got more deep speed than everybody. So he was just able to be a better athlete than you, so he was winning. And this year, they put a lot of emphasis on him in practices and training camp and OTAs to refining his technique. So I've seen a couple of plays where he try, he's trying some new things that maybe didn't work, but he's trying to add to his repertoire and be a better player. So I think as the season progresses, we've seen him get better and better as he's gotten comfortable with not only his body getting back to being healthy, he did have an ankle injury, but also his technique is getting better compared to what it was last year. So while we're not at the 2017 hype level yet, in terms of how he's performing, he's doing really well right now in terms of coming into game six for us uh, week seven. All right, very good. Marlon Humphrey, I think, also taking a step back in his second year, but is still a, a, a fine corner. And similar in terms of that really great passer rating against that Lattimore had in year one. Uh, okay, snaps at safety. What can you tell us about the roles and how they've been split? All right, so the role is Marcus Williams is going to be on the field every snap. He's your free safety. They really like him. And then that strong safety spot is a little bit of a split between Von Bell and Kurt Coleman. So they brought in Coleman – and to be honest with you, he hasn't done well. Uh, he has not lived up to the price tag. Now, to be fair to the Saints, you know, I don't think anybody could have predicted this, the safety market collapsing this offseason. So the Saints went out and they immediately paid for their guy to make sure they got him. And he, he's just not been, in terms of on-field performance, performing that well. And because of that, we've seen Von Bell snaps increase and increase and increase. Now, Von Bell's also been doing really well in these areas. Now, in the spots where Kirk Coleman has been effective have been goal line, short area where he, he can direct traffic and also provide a little bit of a thump as a safety. But Von Bell is a third-year guy now. He's played strong safety and free safety. Back in the days where the Saints went and got Jairus Bird. I don't know if you heard of that guy. We don't, sure. like, to talk about, we don't like to talk about him very much. But uh, he replaced Jairus Bird at free safety one year. His first year as a rookie, and then this past year he spent more and more time as a deep safety because Kenny Vaccaro, who you guys just played with the Titans, uh, Kenny's like that jack-of-all-trades safety. Like, you don't want him as a deep safety, mm. but you also don't want him as a as a nickel guy, but you also don't want him as a <laughs> linebacker. But all that said, he still makes plays on the field. So he's kind of like he's good for your team, but he's limited in what he could do. So – the Saints had to have a second safety they could trust deep, and they, they've been 
grooming Bell to do that, and he's gotten better and better. So he's a guy that I'm now seeing and expecting him to continue to see more than 50% of the snaps, but they're going to keep rotating in a guy like Coleman. Maybe it's just because they feel like they've got to pay, you know, they got to get something for the paycheck they signed. But he also does provide an element of, in terms of being that veteran leader on the field, communication, those things he definitely understands pretty well. And he, he's a good combo with, a, you know, like Demario Davis and Cameron Jordan for play calling and making sure all the players are in their spots, even if he's not, you know, performing to the level that we'd like, you know, with a, he's taking bad angles, missed tackles, things like that. But Von Bell is kind of a, a quietly been, if we, if we take the entire secondary as a whole through five games, Von Bell's been your best secondary player in terms of consistency. So, you know, uh, Lattimore's definitely getting better. Ken Crawley is, you know, hopefully going to return to his last year form, uh, all that. But Von Bell has been doing pretty well, so his snaps have continued to grow as the season's progressed. All right. All right, well, that's outstanding uh, synopsis here, the defense here. You really obviously know your team very well. well. If you were the Ravens' OC, how would you attack the Saints' pass defense? The main thing that I would do is avoid the mistake that I'd, I'd argue the past three teams have made. The Saints were quick to adjust to what Tampa tried to come at them with, which was a quick passing attack that forced the defense to slide underneath, and then you try to hit them with a big play with yards after catch, things like that. I think if you're the Ravens, you need to do similar to what y'all did the first drive against the Titans. Come out swinging. You, you went for a deep pass, first play of the game. That's what I would recommend doing against the Saints. Even if it's not successful, attack deep. Because right now the Saints are expecting you, because every team has done this to them so far this season, they're expecting you to try to dink and dunk on them. They're trying, they, they believe that you're going to try to play wear them down, 65 snaps for the defense type of a game where you do 12 play drives. But they've gotten to the point now where they're starting to stop that. I mean, and they were doing it against teams that you know have some offensive talent. I think, you know, the New York Giants record shows a bad team, but uh, are we going to lie and say Odell, Shepard, and Saquon Barkley are not an incredibly talented group of you know weapons? So you, know, you look at the Falcons, they were able to put up points, but they weren't able to close in big situations because of the adjustments the Saints had made. So if I'm the Ravens, I need to attack them. I need to push them back and force that middle of the field to open up by threatening uh, Marcus Williams, Von Bell, Lattimore, and all deep. And just like y'all started off with last uh, last week, I think that would be a smart strategy going against the Saints because if they come out with that Tampa 2 and everything, that means there's going to be deep spots open to go for. And I think that would be the you know smart play. All right, very good. I, I think we've already been an hour and a half here. We wow, really have loved this conversation. <laughs> but we Jeez. have a mailbag to get to, and I'd rather just forgo the special teams discussion because the Ravens fans obviously know who Will Lutz is from, from training camp. Thank uh, you, by the way, <laughs> Harbaugh. Yeah, every year the Ravens give away a kicker to somebody. I don't know if you heard the story this year, but their kicker got in a – apparently was lured into a bad neighborhood by some women and got beaten up. And is, was – you know, other teams were interested in trading for him, but, but they were not able to consummate a trade, and they have him on a reserve uh, non-football injury list now. Wow. So uh, anyway, let's get to the mailbag. Josh, are you still yeah. there after oh, this time? I'm, I'm here. I'm here. I've been going through the mailbag, and then it seems like every time I'd pull a question from the mailbag, you guys would answer it. So I'm like crossing it out. <laughs> so a lot of our mailbag we already covered uh, on such a long, such an in-depth episode. But I do want to get to a few on here. And one guy that I don't believe you mentioned, uh, Josiah is asking about, and that is uh, 
uh, Teddy Bridgewater. Is he the mm. seen as a future guy down in New Orleans, or is he a placeholder? How's, how are the Saints viewing him? Well, the Saints fans will tell you that Taysom Hill is the answer, but I'll tell you right now, Teddy's the answer. Now, the key with Teddy is you've got you to sign him because he's on a one-year deal now. I mean, he, he's gone after this year if you don't uh, plug him in. But in terms of schematic fit, and I'm a big proponent of this. I don't know if you guys believe this, and if not, it's going to be blasphemy. But I believe basically every player in the NFL is a scheme player. Everybody. Everybody's a scheme player. Sorry. They just are. Teddy, from a scheme standpoint, fits the Saints to a T. A West Coast style that does a lot of full-field reads and half-field reads, short intermediate passing game, requires good ball placement, you know, good running game behind them and outside zone type stuff. Teddy fits. Teddy, you don't go and trade for a guy in the preseason give up a third-round pick if you don't see a future in him. Sean Payton has talked about to see a future in him. And they waited to see if he was healthy with the Jets. And you saw – you know, he, he looked good during the preseason. So, you know, the, the key now is can you convince him to stay and can you pay for him? But Drew Brees, in my opinion, and it's going to be a sad day, but I think Drew Brees is done, whether it be after this year or after next year. I don't see him staying in the league. I know everybody talks about the 45-year-old comments, but he's not going to do it. In fact, he told uh, us at The Athletic, he told Jay Glazer that he's not playing to 45. I mean, he's looking forward to spending more time with his kids. And I mentioned earlier in the show, Drew's the guy who's not getting home until 8, 9 o'clock at night because he's sitting in the film room every day. You know, even though this is his career and he loves this game, it's his passion, it comes to a point where every veteran's ready to hang it up. And the Saints are now looking – for that answer. I mean, they've been looking, they've been heavily scouting quarterbacks for the past few drafts, even if they haven't pulled the trigger. They wanted Pat Mahomes. You know, they, they've looked at guys like Baker Mayfield, who would have never come near their stratosphere, obviously. They looked at guys like um, Lamar Jackson. And, you know, when they saw that Teddy was healthy, they jumped the gun on him because I think they know that the day is coming where Drew's gone. And if you're Teddy, is there a better spot in terms of inheriting an offense and a play caller than the New Orleans Saints in the NFL right now? You know, every other team where he would fit has already got an entrenched starter. So, you know, if you're Teddy, it seems to be a good decision to stick around in New Orleans too. Is All right, very good. Drew Brees is signed for through what year? Well, he's technically signed a three-year deal, but the way – and this is something the Saints have been doing a lot of uh, – the third year automatically negates. It's it's void. So 2019 is his last year under contract, and then 2020 is going to just magically disappear after the league year. Hmm. Right, it's just a way to spread the signing bonus over an extra year, but okay. Correct. So the cap number for Drew will still linger even though Drew is gone. Okay, so it's a way enough. to pay for them and push the money down the road. Okay. Well, we're used to that here in Baltimore. We'll be paying for Chris Davis for the next 20 years. <laughs> um, so how how are they doing that on a Sunday? Is Teddy inactive each Sunday, kind of like RG3 is here in Baltimore? No, Teddy is uh, the number two. So as soon as Teddy walked in the door, he's the backup. Okay, but so, they, so, you're activating three quarterbacks. For every Sunday. Sunday. So, now, keep in mind that Taysom isn't just a court. Taysom plays coverage. He plays special teams coverage, so he's there on punt uh, return, I mean, uh, punt coverage, kickoff coverage, and he's also a kickoff returner. So, And then you see the gimmick plays on offense and the option plays on offense. So he's more than just a that third quarterback who sits there and holds a clipboard. He's going to see more time. But if Drew were to go down, Teddy's the one that comes into the game. So they are dressing three, but that third guy they're dressing is a glorified special teamer who's also quarterback ability. 
All right, so that that uh, gets to Marcus's questions about the the difference in how the Saints are used in Taysom versus the Ravens with Lamar Jackson. Because from afar, it's easy for us to just look and see, oh, they're doing the same thing with Taysom that we're doing with Lamar. But clearly, Taysom, they're given a bigger role with special teams and not trying to save him as a quarterback. Yeah, exactly. And now, now Sean Payton has come out and said that he believes he has three starting quarterbacks on the roster. I mean, and this isn't to say they don't believe in Taysom, but, you know, Taysom is, and I've mentioned this on my show, Taysom is what Tim Tebow could have been, that elite athlete who can do whatever you want, and Taysom is simply willing to do whatever it takes to get on the field. He's blocked a punt. He's he's returned a, a kickoff for 40 yards. You know, he, he's run the ball for 40 yards as a runner on the option play. He wants to do whatever it takes to get on the field. And, you know, that doesn't mean that he can't one day develop into a quarterback because they're, they're certainly trying to give him those looks and opportunities. But, you know, for the most part, he's seen as the number three quarterback, even though he's on the field so much. In terms of what they're doing with Lamar, you know, I, I think with Lamar, it's a mix. I mean, you want to take advantage of Lamar's athleticism, but you also see Lamar as the future after Flacco, where I don't think that vision is necessarily set in stone for New Orleans right now, where it's kind of more of an up-in-the-air thing. He might be, who knows, but right now we're going to take advantage of his freakish athletic ability. All right. Uh, I'm going to combine a few questions in here from Zach and Swizzle, who are both asking, you guys, met, you talked about the offense and for the Ravens, the offensive attack would be to come in hard, uh, hard and fast. Uh, mm-hmm. But on the defensive side, the Ravens' defense did so well this past week. How do you carry that into playing a much tougher offense like the Saints? And can do you see them going in and playing a bunch of dime? Okay, well, I'll start first I, I, uh, on that. I, I certainly see the dime being the primary pass defense package. And one of them is, uh, you know, what Deuce mentioned is that they are good at using crossing routes and they're good at taking advantage of the area between the second and third levels. And Levine is the only guy who really can patrol that. We've, we've talked about both inside linebackers being very much downhill players. I do think Kenny Young can neutralize some of what uh, Kamara can do as a, as a receiver. But we'll, we'll see on that he's at least a fast guy and he's a downhill player so hopefully he can he can maintain the discipline necessary to to stay with him as a as a cover guy and anything you'd add to that uh the only thing i would say is i think it would be smart for the ravens to dial black dial back their blitzes because uh, a lot of the sacks that came last week for the against the titans were there was receivers open but Mariota is not on the level as Drew. He's rattled, and he would not hit his drop and release. He tried to hit his drop and then move. Whereas Drew is going to stay patient in the pocket. Even if you've got two guys touching him, he's going to get the throw off. So I, I think for the Ravens, play that dime defense and trust your guys in coverage and try to get more coverage sacks than to try to force it with more aggressive play calling. And if you sit back, allow Drew to make a mistake, instead of just trying to get to him immediately. I think just slightly tweak that attack plan a little bit because, to me, it's really dangerous to only leave five or six guys defending the uh, second and third level when you got Drew Brees at quarterback. Yeah, completely agree. The way to beat good quarterbacks almost always is to try and generate a meaningful four-man pass rush. I think the, the Ravens are capable of doing that, and we'll see if it if Drew's Drew will make the mistakes necessary mm-hmm. to really fuel the defense in some significant ways it just I, as a as a note the ravens had 14 five plus man rushes against uh the titans had nine sacks on those 14 plays mm-hmm. all right so what do you got I, what do you, 
Yeah, let's close out the mailbag with I am Jax, who was wondering about the Saints and their run defense. Is it uh, a real stat? Are they really that good, or is it affected by the uh, opponents? Is it more inflated than it actually is, or do they have a really good run defense? I think they have a really good – I mean, in terms of being inflated, I I hate to even talk about that because then we can argue, well, is the Ravens' defense inflated because of who y'all have played? Because y'all have yet to face a Rams or a Saints offense or anything like that. And that's not to, you know, take a dump on, like, the Bengals, who I think have a good offense, but – you know, y'all haven't exactly played lights out guys. So I don't like to use that because you play who you play. Whoever's on your schedule is who you got to play against. And obviously, if you're a good team, you're going to take advantage of lesser talent. That's what you're supposed to do. So I think for the Saints, it's real. You know, I think if you look at even the running backs they've played and the offensive lines they've gone against, they haven't gone against slouches. I mean, you know, the the Falcons are regularly usually pretty good in that area. They didn't have Devontae Freeman, but you still played guys like, you know, Carlos Hyde. You you still went against Adrian Peterson, who a lot of the league has seen still has plenty left in the tank. And they had Thompson. They have a good old line there with the Redskins. So the key with the Saints is they have one legitimate star right now in Cameron Jordan. Uh, they have a couple of guys who are kind of ascending talents, like Sheldon Rankins, Marcus Davenport, Demario Davis. But the reason the Saints' running defense is so successful right now is they're just a fundamentally sound unit. They have great containment. They keep good gap integrity, and they're able to stack and shed blocks. Uh, and that's really all there is to it. It's not like they have the star power of like a Rams defensive line or anything. They're just a very fundamentally sound unit, and that's how they're able to hold opponents right now to short gains uh, in the running game. All right. Uh, that, I mean, yeah, you can't argue with that. They they can only do as good as they can do. Um, all right, Deuce, thanks for uh, joining us today. Let's get your Twitter handle out there. And I'm telling people all the time to sign up for The Athletic simply because up here in Baltimore, Jeff and Dan and Matt are doing great jobs covering the Orioles and the Ravens. But what else is cool about it is if you sign up for The Athletic, you get to log in and, and check out the coverage of all the other teams. So you can see your writing up there. And how else can people follow you? Hey, you can follow me at, at Rev Deuce Windham. So that's R E V D E U C E W I N D H A M. And like like I said, man, I, if you haven't joined the Athletic, you can get a free trial for a, a week. But with the NBA season kicking off, they're actually giving out a forty percent discount right now. So it's three bucks a month. I mean, everybody spends more than that on their morning coffee or their donuts. So you know, three bucks a month. And the thing that I like about the Athletic, and this is basically every city, they have put a conscientious effort to getting quality content that you know the the long form articles the in-depth film analysis and you don't even have to just be a ravens or a saints fan because the nfl draft stuff they have like when they brought in dame brugler who's one of my favorite guys when it comes to draft work i mean the nfl page has got guys like ted Wynn doing film analysis i mean if you want to learn more about the game and then also learn more about your teams i think the athletic is a great spot to go and you sign up three bucks a month you get access to everything the athletic has nba nfl college football etc etc i definitely think it's worth it obviously i'm biased because i work for them but uh, i think it's a good product well and and here's all you gotta do is i just opened up the little search bar and typed saints and the first thing that comes up is your article from earlier today uh will the sack happy ravens will be a big test for drew Brees. So, mm-hmm. yeah, as a Ravens fan, this is a great write-up from an outside perspective where we can see the thoughts on the Ravens. So, yeah. Always it, good it, to see that. It's, it's always good. So, all right. I, uh, th- 
Thanks for joining us, Ken. You got something to add? I do, so I just want to say this has been one of the most informative of these episodes. I've loved doing these Know Your Foe episodes because they always bring in someone with a different point of view and a very uh, you know, strong, technical football person, and, and you are just that, and uh, much appreciated this, this time you've given to us. And it's been a lot longer than we expected, but I think our listeners will really enjoy it. Thanks for having me. Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. Some cars are comfy on the inside, but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower, but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.